Legolas and Gimli and Christian Nationalism. Introduction. In the recent discussions of Stephen Wolfe's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, whatever our preferences or misgivings for the word nationalism to describe his project, a great deal of ink, or ones and zeros, has been spent on the themes of Wolfe's critique of Western universality. Jonathan Tomes quotes a representative passage, quote, Western man is enamored of his ideology of universality. It is the chief and only ground of his self-regard. His in-group is all people. It is a universal in-group. Everyone is an object of his beneficence. But in perverse fashion, he is his own in-group's out-group. The object of his regard is the non-Westerner at the Westerner's expense. A bizarre self-denigration rooted in guilt and malaise. Loss and humiliation is the point, however. It is euphoric to him. His own degradation is thrilling. This is his psychosexual ethnomasochism, the most pernicious illness of the Western mind. Repeatedly in the face of ethnic identity politics, we see Western man retreating to this universality, to the universal values of the Declaration of Independence, for example, not realizing that these values come from the collective experience of a cluster of European nations. In this retreat, he perpetuates the conditions for ethnic identity politics, since Western values lack universality in reality, equality is never achievable. Tomes summarizes a prominent criticism. Quote, Whatever Wolf believes his ethnos to be, this is taking the strategies of CRT and saying, yes, let's use that for us. And Tomes heartily agrees, concluding later in his essay, such a belief would of course involve repudiating and teaching children to repudiate any classical form of natural law teaching as expressed, for example, in C.S. Lewis's idea of the Tao in his abolition of man, unquote. However, merely based on the quotations Tomes provides, it is utterly unclear that what they say this summary indicates is in fact what Wolf is saying. The critique of ideologies of Western universality as the, quote, chief and only ground of his self-regard need not imply a rejection of all universals or universality, nor does pointing out conditions that perpetuate ethnic identity politics imply an embrace of the strategies of CRT. In fact, a straightforward reading of these quotations all by themselves suggests that this is almost exactly the opposite of Wolf's aim. He's critiquing what he believes is an underlying tendency that leaves Western peoples susceptible to CRT, not embracing it, much less repudiating any classical form of natural law teaching. Augustine, Lewis, and Tolkien to the rescue. But since Tomes has appealed to Lewis, to Lewis we shall go. But first, St. Augustine. Augustine famously described the fallen state as a condition of disordered loves and the path of holiness as a restoration and right ordering of our loves. In The Four Loves, Lewis cites Rogemont's maxim that love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. I take Wolf's critique of ideological universality as the chief and only ground of his self-regard as something of this demonic love. It is not coincidental that Lewis cites this maxim as he begins his section on patriotism, 
and love of country. Noting that the modern world has come face to face with this demon, and many are tempted to reject patriotism altogether. For example, quote, some begin to suspect that it is never anything but a demon, unquote. But Lewis pushes back against this reactionism, pointing to the love of home, of the place we grew up in, or the places, perhaps many, which have been our homes, of all places, fairly near these and fairly like them, love of old acquaintances, of familiar sights, sounds, and smells, unquote. But Lewis isn't describing this love of place and familiarity in opposition to the right kind of love of nation, or even of a broader or more, dare I say, universal love of humanity in general. Quote, it would be hard to find any legitimate point of view from which this feeling, that is, love of place, home, familiarity, could be condemned. As the family offers us the first step beyond self-love, so this offers us the first step beyond family selfishness. Of course, it is not pure charity. It involves love of our neighbors in the local, not of our neighbor, capital N, in the dominical sense. But those who do not love the fellow villagers or fellow townsmen whom they have seen are not likely to have got very far towards loving man whom they have not. All natural affections, including this, can become rivals to spiritual love, but they can also be preparatory imitations of it, training, so to speak, of the spiritual muscles which grace may later put to a higher service, as women nurse dolls in childhood and later nurse children. There may come an occasion for renouncing this love. Pluck out your right eye, but you need to have an eye first, a creature which had none, which had only got so far as a photosensitive spot, would be very ill-employed in meditation on that severe text. End quote. The Four Loves, page 24. I take Wolf to be working with this basic framework, arguing that the rightly ordered love of man and humanity in general is simply not possible or likely apart from beginning with the more rudimentary loves of place, home, family, and familiarity. These particular loves are the training ground for the spiritual muscles of the love that moves beyond them. The values of the West do not spring up spontaneously in every human culture universally, but they are, as Wolf says, the, quote, products of Western experience and thus their particular inheritance, unquote. And this brings us, of course, to J.R.R. Tolkien. It has been noted by many that the friendship that develops between Gimli and Legolas in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is one of the more striking and moving in modern literature. And it is all the more striking and moving for the fierce and competing loyalties of the dwarf and elf princes. They are notoriously fierce lovers of their own places, their own homes, their own ways, and yet it is arguably that fierce love of their particulars that eventually blossoms into a deep and abiding friendship through the furnace of shared experiences, trials, and adventure. On top of this fierce love of their own things, Gimli's family has never quite forgiven what the elves of Mirkwood did to them, imprisoning them briefly as recorded in The Hobbit, and the elves of Lothlorien have their own historic reasons for wariness of dwarves, forbidding their entry into the land, which the elf Haldir moderates by only requiring the blindfolding of Gimli. Of course, when Gimli objects, Aragorn insists that the whole fellowship be blindfolded, 
Legolas the elf included, to his great chagrin. Nevertheless, it was Gandalf who initially urged the friendship of the dwarf and the elf at the doors of Durin, saying, Those were happier days, when there was still close friendship at times between folk of different race, even between dwarves and elves. It was not the fault of the dwarves that the friendship waned, said Gimli. I have not heard that it was the fault of the elves, said Legolas. I have heard both, said Gandalf, and I will not give judgment now, but I beg you too, Legolas and Gimli, at least to be friends and to help me. I need you both. The doors are shut and hidden, and the sooner we find them the better. Night is at hand. Commentators note that this friendship perhaps first begins to kindle in the minds of Moria, and in the blindfolded entry into Lothlorien following. But Lothlorien is the real turning point. Galadriel herself breaks the ice when she first speaks to Gimli, specifically honoring the places that Gimli loves. Quote, Dark is the water of Keled Zaram, and cold are the springs of Kibbel Nalah, and fair were the many-pillared halls of Khazad-dûm, in elder days before the fall of the mighty kings beneath the stone. She looked upon Gimli, who sat glowering and sad, and she smiled. And the dwarf, hearing the names given in his own ancient tongue, looked up and met her eyes, and it seemed to him that he looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy and saw their love and understanding. Wonder came into his face, and then he smiled in answer. He rose clumsily and bowed in dwarf fashion, saying, Yet more fair is the living land of Lorien, and the Lady Galadriel is above all the jewels that lie in the earth. What a striking description. He looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy and saw their love and understanding. Gimli joins Legolas regularly in exploring Lorien, and by the time they are leaving, they are fast friends. When Gimli leaves Lorien and he is asked what gift he would receive, he says that merely seeing and hearing Galadriel has been enough. But when pressed, he asks for a single strand of her hair. A new, broader love has stirred in the dwarf's heart, emerging with the fierce defensiveness of the Lady of the Wood when the men of the Mark come upon them and cross-examine them while on their search for Merry and Pippin. But it's important to note that the friendship of Legolas and Gimli never devolves into a blended or universal love. Rather, while they certainly come to share some particular loves, the basis of their friendship seems to be a deep appreciation for the love that the other has for his particular places, home, ways, and familiarities. Both the dwarf and the elf sing songs recalling the beauty and glory of their homes and histories of Khazad-dûm and Nimrodel, respectively. And one of the more moving moments between them in the chapter entitled The Road to Isengard, Gimli describes the beauty of the caverns of Helm's Deep with its translucence, quote, translucent as the living hands of Queen Galadriel. And the elf replies, You move me, Gimli, said Legolas. I have never heard you speak like this before. Almost you make me regret that I have not seen these caves. Come, let us make this bargain. If we both return safe out of the perils that await us, we will journey for a while together. You shall visit Fangorn with me, and then I will come with you to see Helm's Deep. That would not be the way of return that I should choose, said Gimli, but I will endure Fangorn if I have your promise to come back to the caves and share their wonder with me. 
Gimli and Legolas promise each other to visit again both the forest of Fangorn and the caves of Helm's Deep together. But notice that it is not despite their fierce loves and loyalties to their particular places and homes that they have forged a friendship. It is precisely because of those loves of their places and homes that a friendship has emerged and will continue into the future. Later, after the One Ring is destroyed, they did visit the caves of Helm's Deep, and it says that Legolas emerged silent, and only Gimli could find words fit for the moment, and Tolkien writes, and never before has a dwarf claimed a victory over an elf in a contest of words. Conclusion. Much remains to discuss and debate regarding the call for a Christian nationalism. But perhaps we may at least recognize that the project of Western universality, at least in its postmodern and multicultural manifestations, has been an abject failure. Love of humanity does not simply arise from nothing. Love of the other, the universal, arises from the love of the particular, the familiar, one's favorite places and peoples. No doubt these familiar loves and natural affections can become demons when they are elevated to positions they were never intended to occupy. But by the same token, or Tolkien, without them, the love of the other, the foreign and universal, would seem to be impossible. The love of the universal, divorced from the right ordering of particulars, can turn into its own demon, and in the name of multiculturalism and pluralism, only anxiety and enmity and hatred fills a land. Wolf has been quoted as saying, people of different groups can exercise respect for difference, conduct some routine business with each other, join in inter-ethnic alliances for mutual good, and exercise common humanity, for example, the Good Samaritan. But they cannot have a life together that goes beyond mutual alliance." Unquote. And it very well may be necessary to return to this grim reality, something like the ways of dwarves and elves in Middle-earth. And yet perhaps... The friendship of Gimli and Legolas suggests that something more is possible, but only forged through the fires of trial and adventure, through the supernatural working of the spirit, something not to be sentimentally banked on or simplistically presumed upon. Wolf's critique of conservatism itself seems accurate. A vague return to the universal principles of the Declaration of Independence is not a radical enough repentance. By itself, it can function as merely another form of ideological multiculturalism. The French Revolution was waged upon universal ideals, and the blood and treachery that flowed in the Parisian streets is enough evidence of its vacuity. But the American War for Independence was waged from a love of particular people, customs, places, families, neighborhoods, hills, rivers, and covenants. In the furnace of fighting side by side for our loves, true friendships and loyalties form. This isn't a melting pot per se, but it is a true nation. It has been pointed out a number of times that conservatism finds itself routinely on the defensive. All we know is what we are against, and so conservatism so often seems to be nothing but a rearguard action, a well-meaning retreat. But a faithful culture war one that succeeds, one that takes back and occupies the ground of a society, will be one that is driven by a host of rightly ordered loves. As Chesterton said, 
The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And that love behind him is of particular places, friendships, families, streets, and smells. Evangelical elites and the progressive media complex want you to think that Christian nationalism is hopelessly racist, bigoted, and an idol for right-wing Christians. Is Christian nationalism the golden calf of the religious right? Or is it the way forward? Stephen Wolf provides an answer in the new book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, which I'm looking forward to reading. Click the link below to order today. Before I go, I want to tell you about my page at Canon Plus. If you'd like to see more of what I've done, what I've written, what I've recorded, more of what's on having two legs, you can click the link in the description, wherever that is.